Section 49 of Jean Christophe, Volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Jean Christophe, Volume 1, by Romain Roland, translated by Gilbert Canaan, Revolt 2, Part 5. The thing was bound to happen. Mannheim had gone on revising Christophe's articles, and he no longer scrupled about deleting whole lines of criticism and replacing them with compliments. One day, out visiting, Christophe met a certain virtuoso, a foppish pianist whom he had slaughtered. The man came and thanked him with a smile that showed all his white teeth. He replied brutally that there was no reason for it. The other insisted and poured forth expressions of gratitude. Christophe cut him short by saying that if he was satisfied with the article, that was his affair, but that the article had certainly not been written with a view to pleasing him, and he turned his back on him. The virtuoso thought him a kindly bore and went away laughing, but Christophe remembered having received a card of thanks from another of his victims, and a suspicion flashed upon him. He went out, bought the last number of the review at a newsstand, turned to his article, and read. At first he wondered if he were going mad. Then he understood, and mad with rage he ran to the office of the Dionysus. Waldhaus and Mannheim were there, talking to an actress whom they knew. They had no need to ask Christophe what brought him. Throwing a number of the review on the table, Christophe let fly at them without stopping to take breath, with extraordinary violence, shouting, calling them rogues, rascals, forgers, thumping on the floor with a chair. Mannheim began to laugh. Christophe tried to kick him. Mannheim took refuge behind the table and rolled with laughter. But Waldhaus took it very loftily. With dignity, formally, he tried to make himself heard through the row, and said that he would not allow any one to talk to him in such a tone, that Christophe should hear from him, and he held out his card. Christophe flung it in his face. Mischief-maker! I don't need your card to know what you are. You are a rascal and a forger, and you think I would fight with you? A thrashing is all you deserve. His voice could be heard in the street. People stopped to listen. Mannheim closed the windows. The actress tried to escape, but Christophe was blocking the way. Waldhaus was pale and choking. Mannheim was stuttering and stammering and trying to reply. Christophe did not let them speak. He let loose upon them every expression he could think of, and never stopped until he was out of breath and had come to an end of his insults. Waldhaus and Mannheim only found their tongues after he had gone. Mannheim quickly recovered himself. Insults slipped from him like water from a duck's back, but Waldhaus was still sore. His dignity had been outraged, and what made the affront more mortifying was that there had been witnesses. He would never forgive it. His colleagues joined chorus with him. Mannheim only of the staff of the review was not angry with Christophe. He had had his fill of entertainment out of him. It did not seem to him a heavy price to pay for his pound of flesh to suffer a few violent words. It had been a good joke. If he had been the butt of it, he would have been the first to laugh. And so he was quite ready to shake hands with Christophe, as though nothing had happened. But Christophe was more rancorous and rejected all advances. Mannheim did not care. Christophe was a toy from which he had extracted all the amusement possible. 
he was beginning to want a new puppet. From that very day all was over between them. But that did not prevent Mannheim still saying, whenever Christoph was mentioned in his presence, that they were intimate friends. And perhaps he thought they were. Two days after the quarrel, the first performance of Iphigenia took place. It was an utter failure. Waldhaus's review praised the poem and made no mention of the music. The other papers and reviews made merry over it. They laughed and hissed. The piece was withdrawn after the third performance, but the jokes at its expense did not disappear so quickly. People were only too glad of the opportunity of having a fling at Christophe, and for several weeks the Iphigenia remained an unfailing subject for joking. They knew that Christophe had no weapon of defense, and they took advantage of it. The only thing which held them back a little was his position at the court. Although his relation with the Grand Duke had become quite cold, for the prince had several times made remarks to which he had paid no attention whatever, he still went to the palace at intervals, and still enjoyed, in the eye of the public, a sort of official protection, though it was more visionary than real. He took upon himself to destroy even that last support. He suffered from the criticisms. They were concerned not only with his music, but also with his idea of a new form of art, which the writers did not take the trouble to understand. It was very easy to travesty it and make fun of it. Christoph was not yet wise enough to know that the best reply to dishonest critics is to make none and to go on working. For some months past, he had fallen into the bad habit of not letting any unjust attack go unanswered. He wrote an article in which he did not spare certain of his adversaries. The two papers to which he took it returned it with ironically polite excuses for being unable to publish it. Christophe stuck to his guns. He remembered that the socialist paper in the town had made advances to him. He knew one of the editors. They used to meet and talk occasionally. Christophe was glad to find someone who would talk freely about power, the army, and oppression, and archaic prejudices. But they could not go far with each other, for the socialist always came back to Karl Marx, about whom Christophe cared not a rap. Moreover, Christophe used to find in his speeches about the free man, besides a materialism which was not much to his taste, a pedantic severity and a despotism of thought, a secret cult of force, an inverse militarism, all of which did not sound very different from what he heard every day in German. However, he thought of this man and his paper when he saw all other doors in journalism closed to him. He knew that his doing so would cause a scandal. The paper was violent, malignant, and always being condemned. But as Christophe never read it, he only thought of the boldness of its ideas, of which he was not afraid, and not of the baseness of its tone, which would have repelled him. Besides, he was so angry at seeing the other papers in alliance to suppress him that perhaps he would have gone on even if he had been warned. He wanted to show people that he was not so easily got rid of. So he took his article to the socialist paper, which received it with open arms. The next day the article appeared, and the paper announced in large letters that it had engaged the support of the young and talented maestro. Jean-Christophe Kraft, whose keen sympathy with the demands of the working classes was well known. Christophe read neither the note nor the article, 
for he had gone out before dawn for a walk in the country, it being Sunday. He was in fine fettle. As he saw the sunrise, he shouted, laughed, yodeled, leaped and danced. No more review, no more criticisms to do. It was spring, and there was once more the music of the heavens and the earth, the most beautiful of all. No more dark concert rooms, stuffy and smelly, unpleasant people, dull performers. Now the marvelous song of the murmuring forests was to be heard, and over the fields like waves there passed the intoxicating sense of life, breaking through the crust of the earth and issuing from the grave. He went home with his head buzzing with light and music, and his mother gave him a letter which had been brought from the palace while he was away. The letter was in an impersonal form, and told Herrcraft that he was to go to the palace that morning. The morning was past. It was nearly one o'clock. Christophe was not put about. "'It is too late now,' he said. "'It will do to-morrow.' But his mother said anxiously, "'No, no, you cannot put off an appointment with His Highness like that. You must go at once. Perhaps it is a matter of importance.' Christophe shrugged his shoulders. "'Important! As if those people could have anything important to say. He wants to tell me his ideas about music. That will be funny. If only he has not taken it into his head to rival Siegfried Meyer. Footnote, a nickname given by German pamphleteers to H.M., His Majesty, the Emperor, and wants to show me a hymn to Aegis. I vow that I will not spare him. I shall say— stick to politics you are master there you will always be right but beware of art in art you are seen without your plumes your helmet your uniform your money your titles your ancestors your policemen and just think for a moment what will be left of you then poor louisa took him quite seriously and raised her hands in horror you won't say that you are mad mad it amused him to make her uneasy by playing upon her credulity until he became so extravagant that Louisa began to see that he was making fun of her. "'You are stupid, my boy!' He laughed and kissed her. He was in a wonderfully good humor. On his walk he had found a beautiful musical theme, and he felt it frolicking in him like a fish in water. He refused to go to the palace until he had had something to eat, he was as hungry as an ape. Louisa then supervised his dressing, for he was beginning to tease her again, pretending that he was quite all right as he was with his old clothes and dusty boots. But he changed them all the same, and cleaned his boots, whistling like a blackbird and imitating all the instruments in an orchestra. When he had finished, his mother inspected him and gravely tied his tie for him again, for once in a way he was very patient because he was pleased with himself, which was not very usual. He went off saying that he was going to elope with Princess Adelaide, the Grand Duke's daughter, quite a pretty woman, who was married to a German princeling and had come to stay with her parents for a few weeks. She had shown sympathy for Christophe when he was a child, and he had a soft side for her. Louisa used to declare that he was in love with her, and he would pretend to be so in fun. He did not hurry. He dawdled and looked into the shops, and stopped to pat some dog that he knew as it lay on its side and yawned in the sun. He jumped over the harmless railings which enclosed the palace square, a great empty square, 
surrounded with houses, with two little fountains, two symmetrical bare flower beds, divided, as by a parting, by a gravel path, carefully raked and bordered by orange trees in tubs. In the middle was the bronze statue of some unknown grand duke in the costume of Louis-Philippe, on a pediment adorned at the four corners by allegorical figures representing the virtues. On a seat one solitary man was dozing over his paper. Behind the silly moat of the earthworks of the palace, two sleepy cannon yawned upon the sleepy town. Christophe laughed at the whole thing. He entered the palace without troubling to take on a more official manner. At most he stopped humming, but his thoughts went dancing on inside him. He threw his hat on the table in the hall and familiarly greeted the old usher, whom he had known since he was a child. The old man had been there on the day when Christophe had first entered the palace, on the evening when he had seen Hassler. But today the old man, who always used to reply good-humouredly to Christophe's disrespectful sallies, now seemed a little haughty. Christophe paid no heed to it. A little farther on, in the antechamber, he met a clerk of the chancery, who was usually full of conversation and very friendly. He was surprised to see him hurry past him to avoid having to talk. However, he did not attach any significance to it, and went on and asked to be shown in. He went in. They had just finished dinner. His Highness was in one of the drawing-rooms. He was leaning against the mantelpiece, smoking and talking to his guests, among whom Christophe saw his princess, who was also smoking. She was lying back in an armchair and talking in a loud voice to some officers who made a circle about her. The gathering was lively. They were all very merry, and when Christophe entered he heard the Grand Duke's thick laugh, but he stopped dead when he saw Christophe. He growled and pounced on him. "'Ah, there you are,' he said. "'You have condescended to come at last?' Do you think you can go on making fun of me any longer? You're a blackguard, sir. Christophe was so staggered by this brutal attack that it was some time before he could utter a word. He was thinking that he was only late, and that that could not have provoked such violence. He murmured, What have I done, your highness? His highness did not listen and went on angrily. Be silent. I will not be insulted by a blackguard. Christophe turned pale and gulped so as to try to speak, for he was choking. He made an effort and said, "'Your Highness, you have no right. You have no right to insult me without telling me what I have done.' The Grand Duke turned to his secretary, who produced a paper from his pocket and held it out to him. He was in such a state of exasperation as could not be explained only by his anger. The fumes of good wine had their share in it, too. He came and stood in front of Christophe, and like a toreador with his cape, furiously waved the crumpled newspaper in his face and shouted, "'Your muck, sir! You deserve to have your nose rubbed in it!' Christophe recognized the socialist paper. "'I don't see what harm there is in it,' he said. "'What? What?' screamed the Grand Duke. "'You are impudent!' This rascally paper, which insults me from day to day and spews out filthy insults upon me. Sire, said Christophe, I have not read it. You lie, shouted the Grand Duke. You shall not call me a liar, said Christophe. I have not read it. I am only concerned with reviews, and besides, 
I have the right to write in whatever paper I like. You have no right but to hold your tongue. I have been too kind to you. I have heaped kindness upon you, you and yours, in spite of your misconduct and your father's, which would have justified me in cutting you off. I forbid you to go on writing in a paper which is hostile to me. And further, I forbid you altogether to write anything in future without my authority. I have had enough of your musical polemics. I will not allow anyone who enjoys my patronage to spend his time in attacking everything which is dear to people of taste and feeling, to all true Germans. You would do better to write better music, or, if that is impossible, to practice your scales and exercises. I don't want to have anything to do with a musical bebel who amuses himself by decrying all our national glories and upsetting the minds of the people. We know what is good, thank God. We do not need to wait for you to tell us. Go to your piano, sir, or leave us in peace. Standing face to face with Christophe, the fat man glared at him insultingly. Christophe was livid and tried to speak. His lips moved. He stammered. I, I am not your slave. I shall say what I like and write what I like. He choked. He was almost weeping with shame and rage. His legs were trembling. He jerked his elbow and upset an ornament on a table by his side. He felt that he was in a ridiculous position. He heard people laughing. He looked down the room and, as through a mist, saw the princess watching the scene and exchanging ironically commiserating remarks with her neighbors. He lost count of what exactly happened. The Grand Duke shouted. Christophe shouted louder than he without knowing what he said. The prince's secretary and another official came towards him and tried to stop him. He pushed them away, and while he talked he waved an ashtray which he had mechanically picked up from the table against which he was leaning. He heard the secretary say, "'Put it down, put it down,' and he heard himself shouting inarticulately and knocking on the edge of the table with the ashtray. "'Go!' roared the Grand Duke, beside himself with rage. "'Go! Go! I'll have you thrown out!' The officers had come up to the prince and were trying to calm him. The Grand Duke looked apoplectic. His eyes were starting from his head. He shouted to them to throw the rascal out. Christophe saw red. He longed to thrust his fist in the Grand Duke's face, but he was crushed under a weight of conflicting feelings. Shame, fury, a remnant of shyness, of German loyalty, traditional respect, habits of humility in the Prince's presence. He tried to speak. He could not. He tried to move. He could not. He could not see or hear. He suffered them to push him along and left the room. He passed through the impassive servants who had come up to the door and had missed nothing of the quarrel. He had to go thirty yards to cross the antechamber, and it seemed a lifetime. The corridor grew longer and longer as he walked up it. He would never get out. The light of day which he saw shining downstairs through the glass door was his haven. He went stumbling down the stairs. He forgot that he was bareheaded. The old usher reminded him to take his hat. He had to gather all his forces to leave the castle, cross the court, reach his home. His teeth were chattering when he opened the door. His mother was terrified by his face and his trembling. He avoided her and refused to answer her questions. He went up to his room, shut himself in, and lay down. He was shaking so that he could not undress. 
His breathing came in jerks, and his whole body seemed shattered. Oh, if only he could see no more, feel no more, no longer have to bear with his wretched body, no longer have to struggle against ignoble life, and fall, fall, breathless, without thought, and no longer be anywhere. With frightful difficulty he tore off his clothes and left them on the ground, and then flung himself into his bed and drew the coverings over him. There was no sound in the room save that of the little iron bed rattling on the tiled floor. Louisa listened at the door. She knocked in vain. She called softly. There was no reply. She waited anxiously listening through the silence. Then she went away. Once or twice during the day she came and listened, and again at night, before she went to bed. Day passed, and the night. The house was still. Christophe was shaking with fever. Every now and then he wept, and in the night he got up several times and shook his fist at the wall. About two o'clock, in an access of madness, he got up from his bed, sweating and half-naked. He wanted to go and kill the Grand Duke. He was devoured by hate and shame. His body and his heart writhed in the fire of it. Nothing of all the storm in him could be heard outside. Not a word, not a sound. With clenched teeth, he fought it down and forced it back into himself. End of section 49